0: This is what my colleagues see, and this is what I see. Every day. Welcome everyone. Welcome to the next show with Monique van der Sloop from Amsterdam. Hello.
1: David from London. Hi, everyone.
0: And we, Ina you know, from Hamburg. Now you know the truth behind our backdrops. And as you get can um, also guess what animals we have in our households if you watched closely. But as you can see, I have no T-Rex behind me right now. So I might reveal at the end of the show where I have usually my little place to stream the next show. Anyway, why are we showing you our home office surroundings at all? In Germany, 25% of employees currently work from home or at the office, like some call it. Many of us have been stuck at home for pretty much a year now. And while we thought at the beginning of the pandemic that we would go back to normal at some stage, the assumption is now, rather, we'll go to back to a new normal, or to a no normal. So, how will the working situation for many of us look like in the future? We will hear about that from today's guest, Letizia Vitto. She's a new work expert, and will share some insights in a talk, and after that, in a conversation with us. Plus, we will meet after our live show for a clubhouse after show conversation with all of you who want to join and have an iPhone at hand. We have to hack the system a little ourselves as not everyone in the group is on iOS. So if you wish to join at 1.30 p.m., please follow the link in the chat or search for what will the future of work look like. But before we kick off with today's topic, what else is occupying your mind, David?
1: Thanks, Thanks, Ina. I'll tell you what's occupying my mind. Bitcoin Bitcoin as we all know is on a crazy tear. It broke 50,000 US dollars per Bitcoin the first time this week. It's up 72% on 2021. It's up about 1200% since March 2020 and a lot of that is driven by the acceptance and the activity of huge institutional investors. The banks essentially are starting to believe in Bitcoin. And we even saw this week Elon Musk buy through Tesla $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin and announce that Tesla will accept Bitcoin as a payment in the near future. But interestingly, there is a big problem brewing with Bitcoin. A study just done at Cambridge University discovered that Bitcoin mining uses the same amount of energy, the same amount of electricity as the entire of Argentina each year. There's a huge energy question brewing around Bitcoin. And of course, people were quick to point out that Tesla is supposed to be super sustainable, but it's just bought all this Bitcoin. There's a very interesting discussion on the horizon about the energy implications of this new digital currency. That is what's on my mind. I also noticed uh, that uh, Elon Musk wasn't the only big tech titan to cause kind of sustainability ripples because Monique, I hear that there's a huge wind farm about to open um, off the Dutch coast. Um, And Jeff Bezos has already purchased half the energy that this wind farm is going to create in order to power Amazon Europe operations. And some people are not too happy about that. Am I right? (laughs)
2: Exactly. I mean, this is a project that was uh, done. Is being developed and is about to launch by Shell and Eneco, which are, you know, comp- energy companies, but with support of Dutch government because it's green energy. And now suddenly, we, with our taxpayers' money, One are minute. giving all this energy to Amazon. So that's definitely very, that is very clear. Oh. okay. What do we see here? This is the other thing that I um, have been thinking about this week. Um, Synthetic media. The example that is being shown right now is uh, by Epic Games and it's called The Human Creator. This has existed for a while, it's just that now you can do this from a browser or just will be available soon. It just goes to show that synthetic media, you know, media that is produced and, and controlled by algorithms by computers is getting so, so beautiful, so detailed and so real. In a way, it's it's actually more real than reality, because it's you can get so close at any moment. Um, and I think this will be, you know, you it's not just in video, but this will be really an interesting field to follow, because we are visible to each other through screens so often now. And the images you see, they can also be computer-generated images and still be driven by us personally. So I mean, there's a whole new field opening up there in the field of synthetic media and it's not just in video it's also in audio and in text and you know it's it's a a new world that's for sure I like
0: about this video is um, the range of characters you have in there and the diversity shown and what I really like here is that it underlines how big the impact of design on a matter such as diversity is so how you design a product, what language you use, and whether you tend to focus on inclusion or exclusion – hello, Clubhouse mm-hmm. – has an impact on not only the product itself, but also on the consumers and hence the society we live in. I believe that brands who don't think about diversity and inclusion and their impact here will become a less, a lot less relevant in the future, and same applies for companies and the space they offer. sorry, they offer in terms of workplace and culture. So I'm looking forward to what Letizia has to say about this. Please let us know in the chat if you have specific questions to her. And now I'm happy to hand over to David to introduce Letizia properly. See you in a bit.
1: Thanks, Ina. Okay, look, you've already seen out there the dark secrets of my home office. Um, A big question that's on all our minds right now, what is the future of work? Today, I'm super excited because we have someone who has an answer. Leticia Vitor is a writer and speaker on the future of work and the future of consumption. She wrote a book in 2019 called Craftsmanship is the Future of Work. It's about transformations of work in the digital age and what the digital revolution promised us and what it really delivered. So Leticia's here to talk to us about the future of work, how pandemic has changed our working lives and the big trends that are going to continue to reshape this story in the years and decades ahead. So take it away, Letitia, let's roll the credits.
3: Thank you, David. Thank you, David, for this nice intro. So I'm going to focus about the home. It's not generally the main subject that future work experts like to talk about, but a lot of us have spent so much time cooped up in our home, and I believe this is a subject of much more importance than we, than we used to think. Uh, we used to think of the workplace as something else, an office, a factory floor, a construction site, a road perhaps, or a store, certainly not the home. But it's the wrong way to look at the home and the wrong way to look at the workplace because when it comes to the future of work there are many reasons to believe that the home is the next frontier let's just start with this first picture of um, you know the home of a peasant Uh, in fact um, this historic separation between home and work is fairly recent because for thousands of years Uh, Most humans lived where they worked or worked where they lived, and most economic entities, most organizations happened, in fact, in the household. Um, It remained true for craftsmen, for family businesses, and then later, much later, also for mom and pop stores. But um, as a rule, we started to think of the home and the workplace as, as two separate things after the Industrial Revolution, so basically after the 19th century. And this um, separation uh, happened quite, became quite violent, because all of a sudden you had one space, um, in this particular case on the picture, you can see a factory floor with the iconic Charles Chaplin, uh, doing his work on the factory floor on the assembly line. Um, and that separation in the industrial era was also a separation of two types of work. On the one hand, productive work. That's what's, uh, what Chaplin is doing here, right? Producing tangible things that you could sell on the market. And on the other uh, side, on the other uh, play- hand, um, reproductive work. And reproductive work basically um, consists in reproducing the workforce, the workforce of the present. When you look after yourself, you, you feed yourself, you clothe yourself, um, you um, take care of your home to, to stay healthy. That's reproducing the current, the present workforce. And you have to reproduce the workforce of the future by looking after it, by Having children and looking after them and feeding them, so all of that uh, was the reproductive. Um, the, as you can see here, in the, with a the woman at home, she's doing both at the same time. But uh, so the idea was that um, productive work was paid uh, because the the factory worker had a salary, while reproductive work was not paid. Uh, although before the two were mingled and intertwined, and and there was no separation. And even today, the legacy of that is that reproductive work uh, that's done um, at, at home for free is not counted in the GDP. So you know this example, if you iron a shirt uh, yourself, it's, uh, it doesn't count in the GDP. Whereas if you have someone else, if you pay someone else to do it, then it's something that has value because it's counted in the GDP. But what it also meant was that reproductive workers, those doing unpaid work, became inherently dependent and that reproductive work, because it competed with free work, uh, became something that was not paid at all and that was not valued. And after the the, um, industrial revolution, um, there was this idea, this general idea, that the home was for reproduction, whereas production happened outside. Uh, And in fact, this idea was never true. It was never true, and it was always more complicated than that because there was a lot of production at home, happening at home. You may be familiar with the putting-out system. All those women, even after the Industrial Revolution, making clothing at home, and then you know they were subcontractors for larger companies. Um, of course, you still had craftsmen, you still had peasants, and of course, you had lots of domestic workers working in the homes of other individuals. So All in all, it was actually a lot of workers, but it was not part of how we pictured work after the the, um, industrial revolution. And so even though it was never quite true that that there was no work at home, um, it shaped our vision of work and it shaped a lot of the institutions that we still live with today. Let me give you just one example, social security the american social security you know that was a, that was uh, passed by uh, president roosevelt in 1935 it explicitly excluded domestic workers a lot of whom were women and a lot of whom whom were the descendants of, of slaves. So they didn't have, they had none of the protections that were thought for other workers, for example, unemployment insurance and um, a pension and all these things that were included in the uh, Social Security Act of 1935. So um, let's just stay with this picture now. There are lots of things that are changing at the moment that are making it a lot more visible that the home cannot be seen, uh, can, should be seen, sorry, as a place of work, as a workspace, as a complete workspace. It's making a comeback uh, these days. The first, the first reason is that um, there's a new work from home situation, which uh, you guys mentioned a moment ago, almost overnight with the first lockdown. Uh, between 30 and 40%, it depends on the countries, so it depends how you count, and by the way that's the subject in itself, no one is fully capable of saying how many workers all of a sudden stayed at home. Uh, but let's say in the UK it's 40%, right, it's 40% of all workers who more or less overnight um, started, um, or moved from the office to the home. Um, Roughly the number of hours worked from home was multiplied by 10 um, pretty much everywhere. And at the beginning, no one was prepared for it, neither the managers nor nor the workers, but it was made anyway. And surprisingly, all of the obstacles that had been highlighted before to justify, you know, not working from home um, were overcome. Um, It was as easy as that. and it's clear now that there's no that there's no going back because most workers won't want to return to an office full time from nine to five every day, of course, they will return to they, they, they don't mind seeing people but not like this, not the way it was. Also, a lot more companies have discovered that they can get by um, with smaller offices and that they can save lots of money in um, office space. The second thing that happened, um, and that's the the next slide now the next picture you can see is um, the she session as a home crisis you may be familiar with this expression of a she session it was coined uh, during the pandemic to refer to this current crisis as a crisis that affects women disproportionately a lot of women were laid off in proximity services hospitality industry a lot of cleaning women women working in hot in in, in hotels or restaurants um in care work child care all of that um and so that was um a high unemployment rate that affected women, for example, in the UK or in the US. But it's also lots of women who had to pause their jobs, even accountants, marketing people, lawyers, corporate lawyers, who quit or left or paused their job to look after a child at home because the childcare facilities that usually um, were a solution for them to to do work uh, were suddenly closed. And it made it suddenly visible that the work of even the most successful career women dependent was dependent on reproductive workers who on general were other women nannies cleaners social workers and the like who did the work that was outsourced from the home so work that used to be in the home and that was externalized outside the home and so this was a disaster for so many women Um, And it became so clear that the home was at this place of unpaid work and of economic dependency. Uh, Just to give you one figure, in the US, it's said that 2.5 million women quit their jobs. um, So they weren't laid off, quit their jobs because they had no one else, because they had no one to look after a child. Um, That's that's huge. These, again, were not women who, who lost their jobs, women women who uh, had to leave a job that they could have otherwise kept. Now, the next image uh, is uh, the subject of housing in general became more of an issue during the pandemic. It was suddenly seen as a matter of life and death. Um, You literally died from bad housing. I mean, um, these housing inequalities could suddenly be measured um, in deaths and economic despair. Uh, Poor housing conditions are never never acceptable, never good, obviously, but in pandemic times, these inequalities uh, became a visible disaster. And then there was a double problem. It's that the people who, um, who generally don't work from home, Uh, so people who work outside their home in proximity services, cleaning or working in supermarkets or things like that, they tend to uh, overwhelmingly also live in substandard homes, so in poor housing conditions. And so this double exposure or double problem that you have to work outside the home and you have a substandard home uh, explains why in some areas, uh, in some places, uh, the death rate, the, the coronavirus death rate, was 10 times as high as in other places. And um, and also among those people who do work from home, um, if you have substandard housing conditions that became absolutely unbearable. So, if you have no room to no room of your own, um, if you have a horrible home in which you're supposed to uh, to work and produce, um, it's just impossible. So, it makes these housing inequalities um, even uh, more unbearable. Now, the next thing that happened, the fourth, um, yeah, that's the fourth, the fourth phenomenon that was uh, really, really, uh, that changed things uh, during the pandemic was the ment is, because we're still uh, in it, the mental health crisis. Um, Obviously, again, stress and anxiety and loneliness and depression um, sadly, are nothing new because these are phenomena that have been on the rise for um, decades now. But the social distancing imposed by by this time and in, in this time of pandemic um, increased the mental health crisis in in ways that are really unprecedented, and it led more people to challenge the horrible loneliness that comes with a normal home. And when I say normal, I want to use quotation marks, because um, what's normal today is for a lot of people to live on their own. And, and that wasn't the case a century ago. Um, what's normal today is for young people, or what's seen as normal is for young people to make it on on their own and, and, and move away and have their own place. But um, what's been shown in this particular time is that more people want to or have to move again with their parents or with their children and live in multi-generational uh, homes and multi-generational households. Um, that more young people who suffered from loneliness, they, want, they prefer to choose a co-living situation and live with a group of people. And the seemingly utopian co-living options, uh, today they seem achievable and they seem desirable. And these are things that have been made visible by, uh, by the pandemic, which, which uh, accelerated our awareness, uh, awareness of, this, of this situation. Um, in my next slide, I want to tell you again about this normal home. Um, the normal home is actually a very recent invention uh, around the concept of the nuclear family. Right. Mummy, daddy and children. And this nuclear family model is um, it was never an overwhelming majority of all households, but it was presented as such so that real estate developers and banks and politicians and everyone started designing institutions around this ideal nuclear family. And in fact, uh, today, this nuclear family is very clearly the minority of all households, because between, as I said, between one in four and one in three households are composed of single people, single individuals. Um, there are others that are single parent families there are more households now with multiple generations under one uh, under one roof there are more um, couples that are same-sex couples there're like a lot a lot more different options and in the US and in Europe today a majority of young people under 30 now live with their parents there are more People under thirty who live with their parents than who live with a partner in a couple um, in in their own place. So this this is a, this is something that we need to be aware of. That's changed uh, completely. That's changed dramatically, and it's led many writers and authors during the pandemic to write about the nuclear family as a trap. There was this amazing. Um, Atlantic article that was titled The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake uh, by David Brooks, which which was a a great article. And there were many such uh, pieces uh, on that subject. So to conclude, I'd like to tell you about trends that make me optimistic about the future of work in the home. So the next Uh, The next slide is about one of the trends that we're seeing. Um, And because we need happier housing and better housing for a better future of work, um, there are some reasons to be hopeful because a lot of things that are happening now could in fact make things a little bit better. The, The first thing is that we're witnessing a little bit of geographic redistribution not everyone is moving obviously but a few people are uh, with the remote work revolution and in the u.s it's happening um, well more than marginally Uh, it's happening in in large enough numbers that it can be seen in the prices of homes uh, in cities like new york which you can see now new york city is losing inhabitants it had been losing inhabitants for a while even before the pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated it. It's made superstar cities like New York and, in particular, superstar coastal cities, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York in, in the U.S. Um, it, it's it's made them decline, or it's made their decline very visible, so that there is a new. Um, a new archetype that's emerging now. It's the archetype of the super commuter. But the super commuters of the past were those people who had to live far from their jobs and had to commute for a very long time. Today, it's people who choose to live in a different city or further away from the center because they would only have to go to the office once or twice a week. And so new cities like Boulder in Colorado, that's the next picture you can see here, um, are gaining inhabitants. And across Europe and the world, we're seeing this slight redistribution and the places that had become extremely expensive where housing was not accessible are kind of losing ground because there are more options in secondary cities and different places. So the relative decline, it's relative, uh, but the relative decline of these superstar cities like Paris and London and New York City, um, they could make it a little bit easier. They could make life a little bit easier for those workers who are low paid workers in proximity services who continue to work in them, in those cities. The second uh, trend, and that's the next picture you're going to see now, is that those people working from home are investing so much at the moment to make their homes into a place of work. Um, this is a, fo- a picture of a shed, and the shed, it's no joke, the shed is like a huge revolution right now in a city like London, where people who have a garden are investing massively to build new sheds. Usually, it's to put the lawnmower mower, and you know gardening stuff, but today, it's basically to put an office in it, a remote office, a work from home place so that you can commute by crossing the garden. Um, There are so many sheds being built right now that it's like a six-month wait uh, to have one built at the moment. Um, In other places where there is no garden, it just consists in buying a new chair, a desktop computer, or investing. In new equipment, um, desks, an extra room, or whatever. Some households are moving altogether just to have more space. So they're moving away from the city center to have a little bit more space, and they make uh, they're making a trade off. They don't need to be a, in a central and as central a position, and to have more space with as much money, they move away from the center. So all this suggests that you know. Um, given the significance of these changes that these workers obviously don't expect, again, to, to go f- back to the office full time from 9 to 5. If you invest in, you know, if you spend thousands of euros or pounds or, or dollars to make your room into a place of work, it's because you intend to continue to work in the home. And last but not least, that's the next picture, The um, the homes are changing and and we're seeing that more people than ever before are challenging this 20th century norm of you know either living alone or living in a nuclear family and and the solitude the the, the painful loneliness of students and single workers who only had zoom to be in touch with others and literally were not touched by any other human being um, This became unbearable during lockdown, and and so, by the way, was the burden of parents, and in particular mothers, who had to deal with work and young children at home. And so co-living and um, co-working are now seen as part of the same trend. And multi-generational homes are increasingly also seen as a solution with retired parents who can can help, uh, who can provide the childcare that's missing and and thus enable paid work. So uh, last but not least, I would say that there are also more freelancers and and, and people with irregular revenues who need alternatives, who need different ways of Um, different housing solutions because um, traditional housing is not accessible to to them and there are many, many reasons to challenge the housing housing norms of the 20th century. So my last word of conclusion will be this one. Um, In fact, the future of housing and the future of work are closely connected, closely intertwined and we need to understand that because we need New institutions to support workers. We need to see domestic workers, um, those cleaning the homes of other people, but also um, those looking after the elderly at home and all those people for whom you know the workspace is the home. A few examples of institutions that we can develop and build. Um, the, number one would be better unions that cater to the needs of domestic workers. Number two would be um, new employer-employee negotiations that address the costs of working from home. Who would pay for that new desktop computer that I just bought? Um, A tax system that takes domestic work into account, where you can expense more things. And also new incentives, so that uh, there's a better distribution of unpaid work in the home within households, in particular in, in, in heterosexual couples within men and women. Um and maybe one last example, free universal childcare to empower parents and women in particular, inside and outside the home, new forms of housing, communal housing that will help groups of people mutualize services like childcare, healthcare, cleaning, cooking, and all of this would even create more jobs.
1: Letitia. Thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. I can confirm absolutely that in London, the shed is the dream. And in fact, we've got a long history with sheds, because right after the, the Brexit referendum, David Cameron, very famously in this country, bought himself, a, he resigned as prime minister and bought himself a £50,000 shed to go into his garden and write his memoirs. And now we all want the shed. My shed is a very dark it was as you described very dark it just has the lawnmower and stuff in there and we're all frightened to open the door in case like some a badger jumps out you know and attacks us so I dream of the the work shed now look that was absolutely fascinating I would love to spend the next 10 minutes just talking to you about where all this is heading across the next five and 10 years and taking the perspective of a lot of the people in this audience i mean it sounds as though and i think you you make a very convincing argument and i think most people are convinced that knowledge workers are not heading back to the office in the way they were they used to you know to you know last year two three years ago that kind of 9 to 5 every single day compulsory attendance at the office is gone And it's going to be a much more mixed ecosystem of working from home and working in the office you know in the job i was in before and in the jobs i suspect lots of our viewers are in i think lots of them will be asking themselves how is this going to work from a management perspective can remote teams really be as effective as a group of people all physically present all together as often as possible how am I going to manage um, a remote team as effectively? What's your take on that? I know these are huge questions, but do you really buy, and and I'll share my take in a sec, do you really buy the idea that remote teams can be as effective? And how do you think it changes management? Do you think we're gonna have much more flat structures inside knowledge worker organizations?
3: It's clear that management, that traditional uh, sides of management don't work with remote teams. And and that's why we try to replicate a culture of presenteeism by being on Zoom all the time and, and, and by using surveillance tools and by being connected a little bit too much, which made the whole thing even more alienating because you were stuck on your chair, not moving anywhere, not doing anything and getting physically unhealthy, uh, unhealthier uh, every day. Uh, so that doesn't work, uh, but it's not a zero or one um, situation here. In general, um, being in a remote team doesn't mean you shouldn't see your, your coworkers and colleagues. Um, you, you should, uh, it's, it's, it's always a hybrid thing. So um, the, the, the thing is how do you divide your time and in, in, in how do you choose the space to do what? So there's a space for being together, sharing ideas, for serendipity, for getting to know the people who you're going to work with, uh, especially if you're, a new, if you're new to the team. And then there's a space for deep work, for creative work. And depending on what you do and how you work, um, the proportion of time spent in each um, workspace will vary uh, enormously.
1: And do you think... There are things businesses can do and are there things you'd like to see them do to make all this easier and fairer? And of course, you talked a lot about um, the, the disproportionate impact on women that we've seen of the pandemic. And, um, you know, reproductive work and not being valued and them having to pick up the slack with that and this disproportionately impacting their careers. Like what concrete things would you like to see businesses do in the next five years? And what do you think they will do to make that better? And, And what you'd like and what they and what you think they will do might be very different, obviously.
3: Yes, what I'd like and what they'll do, it was probably not the same thing, but hopefully some of them will do it. Um, The question of how do you how you make your um, company more inclusive if you have different workspaces is a difficult. It's a difficult question. And inclusion is going to be the most important thing, because otherwise the risk is there's one category of work of workers who are in the center, who are there for promotions, to play political games, to be seen, to be valued, and another category of of workers who's out of sight, out of mind, and who's not valued, and will, you know, not be on anyone's minds when there's a question of promoting somebody. And that's a huge risk. It's the same um, risk that uh, we're seeing now with part-time jobs um, that part-time jobs are overwhelmingly given or taken by uh, women, given to or taken by women. And uh, it's there's this presumption, it's this idea that if you are in a part-time job, this, you, you cannot be completely engaged, right? You're not really ambitious. There's no reason why you should get the next promotion, et cetera, et cetera. So not only are you paid less, Uh, just because you work fewer hours, but you're also left out of interesting opportunities. And and so it it compounds and it gets even more unequal after a couple of years. And that's the huge danger. So what that means is that working from home should never be for one category of people. It should not be something to make the lives of women easier. It's something that's for men, women, parents, and non-parents and that we should make sure that everyone's treated the same and that everyone um, has more or less the same deal in that regard. Um, That being said, uh, another thing that's very important is that we shouldn't uh, pretend that what happens inside the home is private and, you know, there's a room for what's private and a room for what's not, and that parenthood is clearly a big subject for Companies. Uh, what I mean by that is that they have a role to play to promote um, fathers, um, to help fathers get more involved. There are lots of companies in Europe and in the US uh, that are paying for uh, longer paternity leaves to make it easier for fathers to be more involved in their families. So there's a like a, a very active role that companies and managers can play to level the playing field for fathers and mothers, for, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it it feels to me as though, I mean, all of this is, well, as you say, you know, the, the underlying truth is it's not so new. And these issues have always been there. Finally, we're talking about them. We've been forced to sort of discover them. And there's a huge journey for managers to go on across the next five, 10 years if you want to have the best team possible and the mo and part of that means the most diverse team possible you're going to have to find ways to navigate all of this now to my mind and i've read your brilliant seven trends i think it was seven on the future of work all of this intersects with another big trend reshaping the decades ahead um and i think this will come into play in the next five ten years which is um you know extended lifespans we're living far longer and you talked in your report about this book the um the 100 year life Uh, how do you think extended lifespans are going to intersect and impact on our careers our working lives um, in the years to come and again what would you like to see you know because this old model as you say in your report of of training and then a big load of work and then i retire feels very outdated now
3: it really does. And it really intersects with all these subjects. Also, the distinction between productive and reproductive work, because the idea of the three stage life model. So first you train, then you work for 40 years and then you retire and you get a pension. Um, this was predicated on the idea that basically what you learned at the beginning was enough to sustain you throughout your work life and also that you were still fit enough to Uh, basically um, you know wait until you can finally retire and then you can rest but if we are now expected to work for 50 or 55 years or more we'll have to have phases of rest in between we'll have to reproduce our workforce and, and and the workforce of the future our children but we'll also have to look after elderly parents and so productive and reproductive will be mingled a lot more and if they are not it will result in massive gender inequalities um, so we have to think in multiple phases and find balance in each of these phases, where we can basically um, yeah have a work life that makes it possible to to include reproduction as well and and um also look after ourselves so that if if we have longer lives we have much much longer lives um, we won't be able to work for 50 years the way our parents and grandparents worked in that second phase of the three phase life or three stage life
1: yeah i mean i find this absolutely fascinating and i can't wait to see how that plays out i want to bring monique in here because i know that we're going to have some questions from the audience But just quickly from from my perspective, I mean, again, of course, this so this 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 issue around life stages and how we how we figure out that mix disproportionately affects women. But even from my perspective, it felt kind of crazy that just as my career was really kind of ticking up and the intensity of it was ticking up was right at the same time we were having children you know what I mean whereas mm-hmm. in my sort of mid late 50s people will expect me to be kind of on the wind down but then I'll have loads of time <laughs> you
3: and know? energy because you'll be healthy <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, like we need to refigure out and let people have some kind of pause you know because the truth is they're going to have decades ahead where they will have much more time but right now is very squeezed and of course that is intensely much more the case for women often. Yeah,
3: and by the way, a lot of them are doing great stuff at at 50 or 60. Look at female politicians. Usually they bloom a little bit later than men because they had this stage where they were more focused on children. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I'm 60. I have a whole career in front of me. And so you have like all these women like Nancy Pelosi in the US or, you know, lots of women who actually thrive a little bit later in life.
2: All right. Well, there are indeed questions from the audience. So um, one of them, I mean, it's very interesting that because of all the digital networks that we have, that we could so easily transport all the knowledge workers from the offices to their homes and nothing changed workwise. we could do that. So the question really is, how will this affect our physical surroundings? So for instance, buildings, apartment buildings, uh, cities, how will they change? What kind of new architecture do we need for
3: uh, to meet this new reality? That's a, a very good question that was addressed by a book I've, I've recently read and really loved, which is called Brave New Home. Um, it's written by an ur- urbanist uh, called uh, Diana Lind, who lives in Philadelphia. And, and her uh, main point or her main message is that we need to move away from. Um, the zoning practices that are still quite common in the U.S. where you have entire areas, residential areas that are designed for um, single family units and nuclear family units, you know, and and she says we need more um, buildings, we need buildings to become more flexible so that they can house flexible households, sometimes with multiple generations, and that can take the shape of what is called ADUs, so um, accessory uh, dwelling units. Um, So it's a little bit larger than the shed. (laughs) It's a little home, a tiny house that you can build in the backyard. Uh, where you can have, you know, your mother, your grandmother move in, or your aunt, or whoever, and that person may or may not work, by the way, if they are retired, they can look after your children, and then you don't need to have, uh, you don't need to spend $2,000 a month on childcare, and you can actually have a career, or whatever, you know, this is just one example, but basically, we'll have, like, we need to take into account that there are multiple households and and that there are also multiple ways of living with others um and that the loneliness that uh, is so extreme at the moment for nearly one person in 3 who, who suffers from terrible loneliness that can be addressed by new forms of housing by um collective uh housing by communal housing things that existed in the past that were quite yeah. common in the past like you know being being somebody's lodger having having a you know just renting a room um, and living with another family that was very very common it's becoming common again um and and i'm not talking about airbnb I'm, i'm talking about lots of other things as well but you know things that were just like typical in the 19th century are making a comeback and we need to design um yeah we need to think of it in terms of what it means for architecture probably it's not a huge change in terms of architecture. It's more, it's more um, you know, making it possible, making flexibility possible, making it possible or, or, or canceling the laws that um, say that you have to have a house of a minimum size, for example, that's something that's uh, much of a yeah. constraint. Um, building more, obviously building a lot more to address the housing crisis, that's really a global crisis. Um, and uh, changing tax incentives. Well, it's 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 a huge. It's a lot of things. A
2: lot of time. it's a lot of new things. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting that you described a model where the children leave the home to be taken care of together somewhere, and all the the parents stay at home to do the work there. It's the it's the other way around than it was before, right? The children stay at home. Somebody takes care of them, and the workers all go out there. So it's a different different transportation system as well. But once short question before we go to the last part of the show, uh, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future of cities? And then I'm especially talking about European cities, because we have a different world here than in the U.S. when it comes to city life.
3: I'm quite optimistic, because the the, the problems that were seen in cities like Paris or London were actually problems that pre Pre existed the pandemic. Um, housing that's not accessible, it's too expensive for the many, um, life is just uh, too hard. And these are things that are a little bit b- slightly balanced now. And that w- now that we have a little bit of redistribution to different cities, but cities have, to me, cities are full of incredible solutions and alternatives and opportunities and and they're not about to die anytime soon i don't think that most people would move to a country house far away from everything and live on their own and um, i quite the opposite in fact
2: well, in fact here in Amsterdam, house prices have even gone up during the last year so there you go we have one last thing we want to ask you um and that's a very special set of questions so let's roll the credits for the next world a new planet. And we invite you to go to that new planet with a hundred of people that will join you there. And we have some five questions for you of what you will bring to this next world. Okay, here we go with question number one. Name one luxury physical object you want to take to your new home. One object would be
3: an oven to bake young bread, as <laughs> um, I learned to bake bread during the pandemic. And I also moved to Germany, which is one of the countries with the best bread. Uh, they really <laughs> know how to make bread. And if I go to a new civiliz- civilization, I want them to learn to bake bread.
2: It's fun. <laughs> and bread is a luxury. I mean, a really good bread is a luxury, absolutely. Okay, next question, question number two. Which book should everyone
3: read before boarding the space shuttle? To get ready, we should read The Uncertainty Mindset by Vaughn Tan. And Vaughn Tan mixed um, ideas of business strategy with the world of haute cuisine uh, and explained in this book (laughs) that what they've learned to do in, you know, Michelin star kitchens and the R&D labs of the best uh, chefs there's, these are things that we need to do in, in other fields as well. Uh, I've got this it, one quote, maybe, yeah. um, that I love from, from Von, Von Tan. He said, when we go away, we, for, we are forced to learn all these new things, and we become more sensitive. Now we can see a carrot in different ways because we have been in different places. So we need that if we go to a new planet. I love that you already have
2: two questions with a food answer. So I'm really s- interested in what you will answer to the next question. Name one exceptional person who should be qualified to be among the first set of pioneers that will go to Planet Next One. Who should
3: that be? A cook, maybe. Go ahead. No, I will change, uh, I'll change and bring someone else. But the, if we can revive him, he died in 2020. Someone who uh, is Dutch, um, Geert van Hofstede. He was the best specialist about intercultural communication and um, his successor is a woman called Erin Mayer, who uh, wrote a book called The Culture Map, in which he mapped cultural differences so that we can all understand each other better and might come in handy if we meet a new group of people with a, different, with a completely different culture.
2: Absolutely. Intergalactic, intercultural differences are huge.
3: Um, Two questions to go. The
2: next question is, create one law that bans something from next one forever. There is a law and you can ban
3: something forever. What would you ban? I'll make it very simple. I will ban exploitation and poverty. (laughs) Oh, there's two laws almost.
2: Uh, no, okay, just law. exploitation yeah. <laughs> and
3: poverty comes with it. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And exploitation of the earth, I mean, of the planet, of the people, of everything, right? Yeah. Exploitation. Okay. There will be some definitions, but you'll be a set of lawyers
3: with That's you maybe. That, Exactly. <laughs> lawyers can work on that. We can help them. It's, it's, it's doable. Okay. All
2: right. Last question for you. Next world question number five. Name one tradition from planet Earth that should absolutely be replicated on planet Next
3: One. Um, I'll use food again. Um, I knew that.
0: (laughs) Go ahead. The
3: French tradition of the apéro, the aperitif, You know, when at 6 p.m. you open a very nice bottle of wine and you spend time with your friends and you share ideas about how to change the world. You don't have to do anything. Just drink wine and talk about changing the world. And that already makes you so much happier. And we've been deprived of that for so long. I want that on my next planet.
2: Well, I think we all agree. We miss that so much. All right. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to having you on this planet.
0: <laughs> thank you, Monique. I look forward to going there. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I will join the app definitely. Thank you for your insights. I really liked your comments, especially on inclusion there. It was a pleasure having you on our show today and also an honor to have you author in our book, The Great Redesign. We meet at 1.30, so in seven minutes, for our Clubhouse after hour um, on the field of work and would love you, the audience, to join us there. You can find the link in the chat. So thank you and see you in a bit over there. Thank you, Ina. See you on Clubhouse. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, a big thank you to the team behind the scenes, Stefan, Merle and Juliane. And um, of course, a big thank you to our partners, Accenture Interactive, Factor 3, our media partner T3N, and our live stream and webinar partner 23. Next time, we welcome Azim Azhar to our next stage. Azim Azhar is an award-winning entrepreneur, analyst, strategist, investor, and speaker. He produces the newsletter Exponential Views and a podcast on the impact of technology on our future economy and society. Azim also contributed to the book, The Great Redesign, as did Letitia. And he is currently giving the final touch to his new book, Exponential, which will be published in summer. So thank you and hope to see you next time. And as promised, I'll show you where I am right now. Hope this works. This is our little studio here. With mm-hmm. fake windows, and see you in a bit. Bye.